Oikawa and Masayuki Kobayashi were in their early 20s when they went missing. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Create more turbulence. The economic statistics. A triple dip recession. Collapsing commodities. Monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning, Hong Kong. Or maybe it's just morning if you're an Australian cricket fan. This is a breaking business news on RTHK Radio 3's Money for Nothing on Friday, the 7th of August. And I'm Richard Harris. Your business headlines this morning. The Bank of England's Super Super Thursday turns out to be a damp squib. There's red across the board. Stock markets around the world dip around half a percent yesterday. And China is said to have spent 144 billion US dollars since June to bolster the stock market. And in other news, markets wait with bated breath for the US jobs report tonight as everyone uses a catchphrase, data dependent, as a signal for interest rate rises. And if you drive a Tesla Model S, beware. Researchers have been able to take control and turn it off at low speeds. Tesla is issuing a patch to fix the flaws. On the last trading day of the week, on Money for Nothing, we have John Dew joining us from his desk at HSBC to wander through last night's markets and the future ones. And if you want to start a business on mainland China, our second guest is your man. Michael Michelini of Unchained Apps will share with you all he's learned from his various startups. But first, our guest host today is a real working fund manager, so we're getting it straight from the man who makes the decisions. The very knowledgeable Kim Doe, head of multi-assets from Bearing Asset Management. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Richard. Uh, good to see you this morning. Now, interest rates, um, are you a September man or a December man? Well, as far as uh, the first rate increase in uh, the U.S. is concerned, uh, we believe that uh, the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates for the first time over the past seven years uh, in September, yes. So um, we think that the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve has, uh, has, has delayed this for too long, actually, because we think that the U.S. economy has normalized. So it's about time for monetary policy in the U.S. to be normalized as well. Yeah, it's only about time. Uh, uh, I think the thing that amazes me is there's a whole generation of traders, market makers, fund managers, investors out there who've never, ever seen an interest rate rise. Uh, that is correct. Uh, had you uh, joined the um, industry uh, after 2008, then uh, you would have had the beautiful ride with zero interest rates uh, to work with. And that has been a Cinderella, a, a very long Cinderella kind of um, journey. But uh, regrettably, I think that Cinderella has um, finally reached her final stop and she's got to get off the bus and maybe start to uh, put in a hard day's work. Well, it looks as if maybe Cinderella is a millennial because we seem to be in the hands of all of them at the moment. <laughs> anyway, it was billed as Super Thursday, the day that the Bank of England bundled all its announcements together into one. UK interest rates were held at half a percent by the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, who voted eight to one to keep interest rates on hold. Analysts were surprised that more policymakers did not vote for a rate increase. It apparently delays the anticipated rate rise till next year, despite a strengthening economy that even Gov- Bank Governor Mark Carney admits. Private domestic demand is robust and is expected to remain so. This year, household spending has been supported by the boost to real incomes from lower food and energy prices. But more recently, wage growth has begun to pick up as the labor market has tightened and productivity has strengthened. 
consumer confidence remains at its highest level in over a decade. As the UK expansion progresses, speculation about the precise timing of the first move in bank rate is increasing. This is understandable, and it's another welcome sign of an economy that is returning to normal. Well, call me old-fashioned, but all of that should imply the rate should go up. But the Bank of England said that a collapsing stock market in China and talks over Greek's debts means the outlook for global growth is muted. Mark Carney gave us some tips to look for as to when rates might go up. The likely timing of the first bank rate increase is drawing closer. However, the exact timing of the first move cannot be predicted in advance. It will be the product of economic developments and prospects. In short, it will be data-dependent. Well, there's that big word, data-dependent, again. I mean, Kim, when you hear these things and you look at US GDP looking pretty good and housing is doing fantastically and the jobs numbers look quite positive, what are they waiting for? How much data do they need? I am very surprised, actually. I am... I am totally. Um, uh, I, I just. I just cannot believe that um, you know both the U.S. and U.K. economies have been able to grow reasonably solidly over the last few years, and uh, yet the central bankers are still so fearful of the potential impact of uh, a rate hike on um, on the sentiment yeah, of businesses. Sort of stuck like rabbits in the lights, aren't they? I, I'm afraid so. I, I, I do do think that the Bank of England should have actually moved before the Fed. That would have made a statement. Mm. Uh, you know, instead of uh, the Bank of England always following the Fed, I would have thought that, that given the, the uh, rebound in the, U- in the UK economy over the last uh, few years, in fact, that they should have moved. Mm. Um, that, that would have been pretty cool, but uh, I'm afraid they would have to follow the Fed now. Well, equity markets, uh, after all that, fell across the board as the market flattened ahead of the summer weekend and the jobs report tonight. The trader's term is that it was a risk-off day. The S&P dipped 0.8 to 2,084. The Nasdaq uh, dipped 1.6% to 5,056. And in Europe, markets were down a touch to 3,368 on the Euro stocks index. Abby Joseph Cohen, who's president of the Goldman Sachs Research Institute, was one of the few to pick the bull run of the early 2000s and is almost regarded as royalty among analysts. She describes in her typically very clear fashion why she's bullish. We look at stocks uh, and valuation the old-fashioned way, which is to take a look at earnings, cash flow, dividends, um, and things like return on equity. We're basically fundamentally driven uh, in our investment research as opposed to technically driven. And based upon the fundamentals, we assume based upon our economic forecast, that economic growth will continue, number one. Number two, that earnings growth for companies in the S&P 500 will likely outstrip that of the rest of the economy because these are the best companies, the best managed, and those that can look for good growth opportunities around the world. Uh, And so when we use a DDM or a DCF approach, uh, our conclusion is that share prices will be higher a year from now than they are uh, presently. And if we go even further, two to three years into the future, our conclusion is that stock prices will be rising, not declining, even in the face of rising interest rates. You know, Kim, the thing I like about Abby is that she's always so clear. She uses very simple, fundamental techniques to come up with a view. Um, I think you guys at Bearings do a similar sort of thing. 
Uh, yeah, yes, we do. Um, we obviously have to compare, you know, the uh, the price of uh, shares relative to the future cash flows. But uh, where I disagree with Ms. Cohen is that well, she is well known for always being bullish. Always, she has never. I've never heard her being bearish before. So uh, I think that uh, listeners have to bear that in mind. Uh, as far as uh, our valuation of the U.S. equity market is concerned, we think that it is quite expensive. Actually, and actually, we in our portfolios we have been reducing our exposure to U.S. equities since last year, and moved to Europe and Japan and even China, uh, where we think that we get a better value for our money. Good. Well, let's uh, look at Asian markets. Last night started uh, the trend uh, of uh, the dips, with Hong Kong falling 60 basis points to 24,375. Shanghai dipped 0.9% to 3,662. Tokyo alone of the major markets showed up in the green, rising just a fifth to end at 20,664. Brent crude hit a new six-month low at 48.80, but recovered in a few minutes to go was trading at $49.30. Gold is dull at 1,089, and the US 10-year Treasury is trading at 2.22%. The euro is also fairly dull, unchanged at $1.09, the yen at 124.70 yen to the dollar. Um, but the pound after Mark Carney's uh, talk uh, became a little bit weaker uh, and is currently trading at about 153. The Main headline in the FT this morning says that according to Goldman Sachs, China spent 144 billion US dollars since June to bolster the country's fragile stock market. Investors have been worried that the authorities might run short on firepower should markets continue to fall. Goldman Sachs believe this figure is less than half of the 320 billion that the national team has at its disposal. The national team is the group of state financial institutions that are intervening in this market. Concern that the national team uh, was leading to uh, was going to exit the market led to shares in Shanghai falling 10% last week. It's currently exactly 8.13. Well, we've got... Uh just the right man today to give us the lowdown on the markets. Hopefully he's not an Australian. Uh, John Jew is the global research economist with HSBC, studied economics at Cambridge and the London School of Economics. And as I'm an LSE grad, I find him very discerning. Good morning, John. Good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, you heard what Mark Carney was saying about the UK economy. What's your view on where these economies, the recent news in the US, recent news in the UK, even Europe, where are they going? Well, I think in terms of Carney's uh, speech and the press conference, it's perfectly reasonable to be data dependent. Um, this is actually how central banks always used to work before forward guidance and all the rest of it. So now we're back to the uh, well monthly data. If it you know gets a few months of very strong inflation or wage growth, which is possible, um, you know, our view is that it's probably going to take until maybe February before the Bank of England has enough confidence in the strength of the data. It's tough to see inflation coming, though, with oil prices going down, weakening China market, commodities falling. Well, exactly, which is why I think um, actually it will be uh, 
February before the Bank of England hikes rates because at the end of the day, they're an inflation-targeting central bank and it looks like it's going to take them a while to get there. Kim? Um, yes, may I just ask you a question? Um, I think that all central banks are in, um, I, I think that um, Richard used the word uh, rabbit hole before. Uh, and I, I really can't understand it. I, I don't know whether you can shed some light on it. But um, to me, 0% interest rates is only emergency interest rates should only be used when the banking system is falling apart. But at the moment, if you look at the US and UK and everywhere else around the world, in fact, all the, um, all the commercial banks are lending money again. And, um, you know, if you go to London, you can see that house prices around London and the other parts of the UK are doing very very well indeed. So to me, everything has normalized except for for uh, interest rates. So I, I can re- I cannot really understand the rationale behind central bankers. So can can you just share some light on that? I mean, I fully sympathise with you, which is that the economy is not too far from normal, and interest rates are very very far from normal. I just think that for central bankers now, they tend to look at the so-called macroprudential tools. So more targeted measures to tackle specific um, asset markets that look like they're running ahead. So, for example, uh, for the housing market, they have a whole range of tools that they can use to perhaps uh, cool down mortgage lending if they think that's the right thing to do. Whereas I think interest rates are such a blunt tool that um, they're probably a bit cautious about using something so big in case that some areas of the economy, like the labour market, like wages, are perhaps not as strong. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, we're at the end of the day talking about the difference of a few months. Um, they're going to normalise sooner or later, um, you know, within the next uh, six months or so. And, and uh, John, the ultimate, you know, where they end up, I think that's more important. But, John, what do you think the impact, I mean, as an economist, you probably have various models that you can put in different interest rates, 25 basis points higher, 50 basis points higher. What do you think the real impact on a rise in interest rates actually is likely to be? Uh, it depends, actually, on how the economy is going. I mean, in the past, um, when the Fed or when the Bank of England has been raising rates, the impact on the real economy has generally not been too bad because the real economy is already recovering, or you'd hope this time as well, on a much more sustained recovery path. Uh, now, the impact on the financial markets, who can guess? I mean, we can look at 94 in the US compared to 2004, but I mean, the financial market would do what it does. But I think the real economy, by the time the central banks start normalizing, will probably do okay. Uh, John, uh, may I just ask you a quick question again? This is Kim Do. Um, in fact, I would have thought that, that an increase in the cash rate actually would be very beneficial for um, the real economy because there are tons of savers out there who actually have earned nothing on their, um, on their uh, savings uh, passbooks or, or their, their, their deposits. So I would have thought that, that, in fact, if you raise interest rates, a lot of people are going to be very happy, especially some of the retirees and uh, some of the savers, you know, who are, are thinking of rainy days. And they will be celebrating. So I, I, I really think that, you know, perhaps people haven't really thought through this as yet. Yeah, um, so it, it does have 
redistributional impacts, you know, things like monetary policy always do, especially when you do uh, more extraordinary kinds of monetary policy like QE. So you may be right that uh, savers will probably feel a bit happier, um, but let's not forget, you know, savers and pensioners, for that matter, also have, whether they want it or not, um, a certain part, I think, of their pensions invested in other assets as well, apart from bank deposits or bonds, you know, it's quite likely they're also invested in the stock market. Um, so it depends if you want to take a long-term view. Over the long run, I think actually, you're, you know, we actually agree. The economy now is on a more sustainable path up and it's, you know, the normalization of interest rates is perfectly justified over the sort of two-year horizon. John, look, coming closer to home, let's look at Asia for a minute. What are your um, favourite areas? What are the, what are the growth hotspots at the moment uh, in Asia? Uh, it's, it's actually quite difficult. I mean, depends on whether you're talking about just the rate of growth, in which case China is still growing faster than most places, or the momentum, in which case... Yeah, we like the momentum because of... we can't always trust the rates that are published. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, the momentum is not, I mean, it's not falling in China, just China, but actually in many places across the region, um, it's a question of really, um, you know, whether the slowdown in China activity is transmitting through the rest of the region. I think it has. There's really very little doubt that it's having a big impact on um, some economies, you know, that trade very heavily with China, like Taiwan or Hong Kong even. So at the end of the day, I think a lot of it does depend on this cycle working itself through. There are some signs that the data in China is turning, for instance, in the housing market, but on the whole, it's still very fragile. So in effect, um, the, the news could well get worse before it gets better. Yeah, so um, it looks as if the developed markets are still ticking along, maybe doing a bit better, and, and Asia still uh, waiting for the new dawn. Well, thank you very much, John. That's John Jew, who's Global Research Economist with HSBC. It's now uh, around 8.21. It is natural for babies to be fed when they are hungry, wherever they are. So let's show a welcoming attitude to mothers and their families who wish to breastfeed their children in public by offering families a supportive environment for breastfeeding their children away from home. Public venues will also be providing a quality customer service. Let's give our children the best. Support a breastfeeding-friendly community. For details, please visit www.fhs.gov.hk. Yes, it's Friday, so you can start chilling a little bit. Our next guest is Michael Michelini, who's Vice President of Marketing and Business Development at Unchained Apps. He's been running startup companies in social media and e-commerce in China since 2007. And Mike was a guest lecturer at Jinan University, teaching their e-business program. Unchained Apps is a startup company developing apps for consumers and businesses. Morning, Mike. Morning. Thanks for having me. Well, you look like an app developer because you're looking very casual this morning. I mean, uh, us sort of uh, laymen kind of think an app developer should be enormously wealthy, you know, just looking at Uber, WhatsApp, Instagram. Um, uh, I don't want to be too personal, but how's it going with you? Uh, it's like the interest rates, I think, you know, pretty steady. 
right now. <laughs> yeah, looking for some looking for some upside. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us, you've been in in China looking at, at startups, which is quite a challenge. What are the hurdles being an American running startups in China? Yeah, I mean, of course, we all hear about you know the dragon of China and trying to to come and conquer it. But I think what I learned the most is to not be that stereotypical aggressive American that's.、Uh, Trying to change China, but to to learn China and、uh, adapt to the way the way the things work, it's that's a, been the biggest process for me over the years. Well, China, as I always think, is a bit like a computer. You have to fool it into doing something、uh, you want it to do, rather than the other way around. Sure, I mean it's it's about like trust or the the keyword guanxi, but it's true. Like I've gotten to know people and over the years, and it makes it easier because you can. Tap on somebody's shoulder when you need, need some help, and you know it's not such a dirty word, but it's it's very helpful to to know the right people when you need for even like web hosting or <clears throat> websites、uh, filtering and things like that. So、uh, the the normal thing is、uh, the U.S. is actually a great place to do these sort of startups, Silicon Valley, and that sort of thing. Why did you choose China? Yeah, it was a pretty conscious decision for me. I, I worked at、uh, Deutsche Bank actually on Wall Street for almost five years on、uh, distressed debt trading, and、uh, I was doing eBay e-commerce、uh, since 2004. Buying from China, I remember working on a fifth floor walk-up at night、uh, on on Skype and Alibaba, talking to factories, and you know I thought it was more challenging and and、uh, international for me. I think.、Uh, It's more exotic and it's still a challenge. Whereas I think I was a little complacent in, in the U.S. and more of a mature market.、Mm. Well, it's interesting.、Uh, some reports recently say that people actually don't want to work for the investment banks anymore.、Uh, they'd rather work for a Google or an app developer because、um, they can make more money. Yeah, it's about it's about the money too, but also the <laughs> lifestyle. The lifestyle, like you see, I mean my. Actually, I thought I'd dressed up today, but、uh. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about it. You look great, just the right for the part.、Um, uh, what do you think about other people going into the the Chinese market? I guess one of the issues with startups, of course, is is raising that seed capital just to get yourself off the ground. How's how's that in China? Sure, of course. That's that's a, a there's a lot of hot money now in Beijing for startups,、uh, but really. Really, that's more for the local entrepreneurs rather than the the Western entrepreneurs. I think it's it's a it's possible to raise money in China as a Westerner. There there are definitely、uh, advantages, but I think you have to show your value to the Chinese investor as a as a Laowai or as a foreigner. Because、uh, you know, if you don't speak the language and, and you're trying to do an app in China,、um, you're going to have a tough time convincing them that you are a better investment than a local entrepreneur. But if you have value, like education is a hot hot topic in China. So, like、uh, Chinese really want to learn from Westerners. So if you can make a startup that's around education or imported food or safety quality, these kind of things, I think you got to look at your industry you're trying to to tap. And just like any business anywhere in the world, you got to have a a barrier to entry, competitive advantage, and、uh, and prove that. But there's lots of, there's lots of money in China. But I think the challenge is. If you don't speak、uh, the language and you can't show differentiation against a, a hungrier entrepreneur, Kim, Ma-、uh, Michael,、um, in terms of regulations,、uh, how 
how tough are they uh, in terms of uh, you know trying to get something from point one to to let's say on the road from one to hundred? How do you get from one to ten, for instance? I mean, how long do do you have to go through all those hoops? Is that worse than Italy, for instance? <laughs> I guess it depends on the the industry. Like if we're talking about tech startups, there is a lot of sensitive. It's very sensitive industry. Um, which is highly regulated because of the internet internet uh, filtering. So for that, it's a lot of learning. You got to learn a lot, or or have a lot of patience. But uh, you have to have a company first, really, to do it, or or you have to trust the local to have all your IP. <laughs> to do, do, it. do you usually uh, invite some locals? To join you, uh, in order to, you know, make sure that you understand the rules and and yeah. you know get into the yeah. the, um, the community kind of uh, yeah, that's that's usually the the biggest advantage is to have a local partner and uh, somebody that you can trust, especially especially for raising money for an investor. They want to see that. Mike, we've heard about the the do's. What are the don'ts in China? Uh, I think the don'ts are, at least as an American from from you know northeast. Uh, don't lose your patience. Don't don't show your emotions. I think uh, I've done both factory e-commerce type stuff and uh, technology. But I think if you show your emotion and, and your, your 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 frustration, I think it's just going to make things worse. <laughs> so. Well, Mike, really appreciate that, and uh, we wish you the best of luck with Unchained Apps, and we look forward to seeing you in the news when you sell it. Uh, yeah. Sooner rather than later. That's uh, Michael Michelini, who's Vice President of Marketing and Business Development at Unchained Apps. Um, Kim, just before we go, um, tell us a little bit about your portfolio. You're quite keen on equities, I see. Not so keen on bonds and interest rates going up. That's probably a good thing. But I think you put cash into US dollars. Now, okay, it's going up a bit, but you're not going to really earn very much on that, are you? Uh, no, <laughs> you're quite right, Richard. I, I wish I can I can tell you that I found so many great opportunities out there, but I think that uh, all um, financial assets are quite expensive at the moment. Uh, bonds are, have been the most expensive asset because central banks have bought something like five and a half trillion US dollars of bonds over the last few years. So that's why we think that um, uh, we we don't want to go compete against the central banks when they are buying all those bonds. So uh, for us. Uh, we prefer to find something which makes sense to us. And what makes sense to us is uh, equities and US dollar cash for the moment. Great. Okay, well, we'll uh, keep a watch on that. Thanks very much. That's Thank you. Uh, our regular guest host, Kim Doe's head of multi-asset uh, at Bearings Asset Management. Just before we go, uh, the markets are opening fairly sluggishly in uh, Tokyo and in, in Seoul. Uh, but in Australia, they're already down about 1.2%, um, still suffering from the commodity issues. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Money for Nothing today. I'm Richard Harris. And just before we go, the weather forecast for today is mainly fine and very hot. The maximum temperature will be about 34 degrees. There will be isolated showers and thunderstorms later. Light to moderate west to northwesterly winds. The outlook? Not a bad weekend. High temperatures will persist tomorrow with a few thunderstorms in the afternoon. More showers early next week. Just to let you know, the uh, severe tropical typhoon Subidor um, is bringing generally fine weather to Guangdong, uh, but it's likely to miss as it's centred about 550 kilometres southeast of Taipei. The temperature at the Royal Reservoir is 29 degrees and the relative humidity is 82%. Now we've got Peter Lewis uh, coming up with Biz Extra, but first the news read by Samantha Butler. 
The head of an independent inquiry says he found shockingly high levels of bacteria at a laundry used by Queen Mary Hospital. Professor Yun Guok Yung, a microbiologist from the University of Hong Kong, said bacteria levels <coughs> excuse me, said bacteria levels in linen washed by Shamwan Laundry in Wong Chuk Hang were seventy five times over international standards. In addition, a fungus that infected six patients at Queen Mary last month was found in almost every step of the laundry process. The hospital authority says it'll pursue liability with the laundry and step up supervision of other laundries. Professor Yun reassured patients they were now safe. Uh, what we're using, we have now tested it, and the count is much less than what is previously. The someone laundry linen items are not satisfactory, and I do agree that it is shockingly high count in the linen items. All these are now rectified, and uh, I think patients now at any HA hospitals are safe in terms of linen items. The government has appointed former ATV News Chief Leung Ga Wing as the new Director of Broadcasting. He succeeds Roy Tang and starts later today. Professor Anthony Fung from the Chinese University's School of Journalism and Communication says he thinks Mr Leung is suitable for the role, but the real test will be in his handling of RTHK's staff union. His major issue is that whether he can trust over the entire like, uh, staff body of RTHA and the union uh, who have been always fight for their autonomy and independence. The search operation for more